thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. On average, one person dies of cancer every four minutes in the UK. That's a shocking statistic. So this week, to coincide with the National Cancer Research Institute's annual cancer conference in Liverpool, where I am right now, we have a special show dedicated to discussing new breakthroughs in cancer research, including what we've learned about how the disease spreads through the body, how cancers can become resistant to chemotherapy, and a new way to combat cancers by reprogramming a patient's immune system. Thank you, Kat. And we'll also be discussing this week some of the week's other breaking science news stories, including this. Now, one of those was an elephant that was saying hello in Korean, and the other was the elephant's trainer. But can you tell which it is? We'll meet Kosik, the elephant that can talk, later in the show. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. It is Sunday, November the 4th, and this is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. You can get in touch with us. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can also comment on our Facebook page. That's at facebook.com slash the Naked Scientists, or you can use good old email, chris at the Naked Scientists.com. Probably the biggest issue in cancer, and one that causes around 9 out of 10 cancer deaths, is the fact that cancers spread around the body, forming other tumours elsewhere. This is a process that scientists call metastasis. Now, we're joined here from the NCRI Cancer Conference by Dr. Joanne Massaguet from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre in New York. And he's working on trying to understand how cancers spread and how we can tackle it. So, hello. Good evening, Joanne. Hello. So, let's start by kind of going back to basics. What, what do we mean by a cancer spreading? What's going on here? So cancer, as we know, is a, a, an abnormal growth uh, that is generated by, initiated by just a few cells in a given tissue. Could be the breast, could be the prostate, uh, uh, intestine, anywhere. A few cells that have accumulated mutations. And these mutations allow these cells to begin to break the rules that keep the healthy normal growth of tissues. These rules include not only growing and proliferating correctly, but also staying put. Cancer cells have the ability to move away, to walk away. And as the tumor grows and the blood vessels are attracted to feed the growth of this tumor, cancer cells find their way into the circulation. Circulation carries them away. And at distant organs, these cells may by virtue of their ability to walk, to infiltrate, to invade, come out of the circulation again, enter that distant tissue that could be the liver, the lung, the bone marrow, the brain, and try and resume growth, cancer growth there. This whole process is what we call metastasis. So we've got these kind of naughty cells, not knowing that they should stay in one place and spreading and forming new tumours. Why, why is this such a big problem in cancer? Why, is this, why does this make cancer so hard to treat? Um, of course, uh, with the spread of, of, of cancer, we have not one tumour only that is localised and can be removed in the operating room. We now have dotted tumours in many other places. Not only that, but um, these tumors are created by the nastiest of the nasty. Those cells that were able to leave the primary tumor, the the, uh, origin tumor, find their way to distant places, resist having invaded an organ, a tissue that they are not accustomed to, and so forth. So the cells that resist this whole process are uh, more aggressive and are going to be even more resistant than the original tumour, to any therapy that we try. These are really evil, nasty cancer cells then. (laughs) So 
I, I remember reading about a, a guy over 100 years ago, Paget, I think his name was, who had the idea of the seed and the soil. So the cancer cells that spread are, are like the seed and they go around the body looking for soil they like to grow in. What do we know about the, the types of, of places that cancer cells spread? Is it, is it the same kind of places, like a cancer will always go to the, to the brain or the lung or, or is it different? We know from patients who have cancer that every type of cancer has a different predilection for metastases uh, to different organs. And uh, so the question is, why? And the way we now think about these based on the uh, results of research is that, of course, when cells leave a tumor, they go everywhere. The circulation takes them everywhere. What we mean by uh, growing in one place uh, is that they die so, everywhere, but they die less. They have a chance in a given organ more than another because they are somehow primed to uh, thrive there uh, with more probability than in another in another distant organ. So I guess this is a bit like a, a dandelion or something, sending all these seeds out, and, and most of them will never, ever grow, but just a few of them do. What do we know now about why some of these cancer cells do manage to grow in some places. What's going on? We know about the different, about the molecules and genes and processes that allow um, these cells to go through a series of bottlenecks that they face in order to invade a given organ. First, they have to come out from the circulation into that organ. The blood vessels are different in different organs. So the cancer cells in the circulation to begin with, they need different skills to get into an organ or another. Second, they have to uh, resist the shock of entering that organ that they have never seen before. And uh, so that immediately selects for cells that were prepared to deal with that new environment. And finally, uh, to overtake, not just to resist, but actually to take over that organ. That too needs a different set of skills. So uh, we've identified genes and, and, and molecules that allow the cancer cells in any given organ to go through each one of these bottlenecks. And of course, it's, it's great to identify all these, these factors, these molecular factors, the genes and the molecules. How are we trying to turn this knowledge into new ways of treating cancer that has spread? Because it still does claim so many lives. Yes, and cancer, 90% of of lives claimed by cancer uh, is through this process of metastasis. We are learning a lot about the, the, the biology but and about these different molecules and the steps that I was talking about. What we want at the end is the common nexus. Those molecules and genes that allow the majority of cancer cells uh, to uh, be metastatic to, as to, to, to many different places. These are the ones that have the highest clinical value. And then with this knowledge, developing uh, drugs that uh, interfere with the ability of cancer cells to set shop um, anywhere or in as many places as possible to have the most effective drugs, the drugs with the widest spectrum uh, of uh, of uh, possible benefit. And just to kind of end uh, really briefly, I mean, we've, we've spent so many years, so many decades researching cancer. I mean, how close do you think we are to actually really making breakthroughs in cancer that has spread? I think we are already making great success because many cancers, 50% or more, are cured. Metastasis, however, is the last bastion and is the most difficult segment of the disease. And this is what a large community now has engaged itself in conquering. So we are going to be seeing, I'm sure, over the next years and decades, a progressive resolution of this problem. Thank you very much. That's uh, Joan Massagate from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre in New York. Kat, thank you. Oscar has called in. He has a question for us. Hello, Oscar. Uh, hello. Hello, you're in London. Uh, yes. Uh, I was wondering uh, how long has cancer existed as a condition and also whether organisms other than animals can get cancer? Kat, uh, I think probably you're the best person to answer this one. Cancer has pretty much always been with us and it's a disease that will affect, can affect any multicellular organism because it's just caused by cells going wrong. Um, so we know, for example, that plants can get cancer, all kinds of animals can get cancer. Most of them don't seem to live long enough to, to get it. Um, but it's a disease that has always been with us. There's evidence from things like dinosaur bones and fossilised human remains, and even before that, Neanderthal remains, that, that cancer has always been a disease that's affected us. So it's, it's pretty much as old as you like, really.
Just to pick you up on the plants thing, of course, they won't have the multi-system type problem that a person with cancer would have. They wouldn't get spread necessarily of a tumour to other bits of the plant, would they? Um, no, but they get kind of, if you've ever seen, you know, a big sort of bulging gall on a plant, that's basically a, a plant kind of tumour because something has hijacked the cells of those of that plant and made them grow out of control, which is basically what's going on in cancer. Either the genes have become faulty or in the case of some viruses, they've hijacked the cells and are making them grow. But cells growing out of control is cancer and pretty much any, any complex organism can get it. Okay, thank you very much, Oscar. I hope that helps. Yeah, it did indeed. Brilliant. Thank Thanks for joining us. It's The Naked Scientist, Chris Smith and Katani. Do get in touch if you have a question. Now, one of the key problems in the treatment of cancer is that tumours, having initially responded very nicely to a course of chemotherapy, can often subsequently become resistant to that same treatment, which makes the cancer much harder to manage. To explain how this happens and how we might be able to overcome the problem, Dr Simon Cook works at the Babraham Institute in Cambridge, and he's with us now. Hello, Simon. Good evening. Well, first of all, tell us a, a little bit about why a cancer does that, why people start off responding very nicely to a drug and then their cancer comes back and now it won't respond. Yeah, well, cancer is driven by the activation of specific signaling pathways in the cell and some of the new drugs which are being used to treat cancer now inhibit these specific pathways. Uh, the analogy I like to use is if you arrive at King's Cross St Pancras and you want to go by underground to Leicester Square, um, if Russell Square is closed, then you can't get through. And that, the analogy there is that the new drugs are, are like blocking Russell Square, so you can't go through the Piccadilly line down to Leicester Square. The point is that tumours are, are tenacious in their ability to get round these blocks, and so they'll just hop on a, a different train and go to Euston and then come down the northern line to get to Leicester Square. So there is heterogeneity in tumour cells, and tumour cells which respond very well initially to, to drugs which inhibit the Piccadilly line, for want of a better phrase, um, will will switch over and, and select out to use a, a different pathway to, to maintain cell proliferation, cell division and cell survival. So when someone has a tumour, if we were to look at the cells in that tumour, we wouldn't see one type of cell only. We would see a mixture of cells with many different genetic changes, making them all behave in a very different way. So when we throw drugs at it, the ones that are sensitive to that drug will be killed or inhibited, but this will select out a population of cells that just by chance happen to have genetic changes that have, as you've put it quite nicely there, got the ability to jump on another train and take them round whatever that blockade the drug has imposed is. That, that's absolutely correct. And um, in many senses, this is sort of Darwinian evolution taking place at the cellular level, that you need two basic ingredients for evolution. You need genetic heterogeneity and you need a selection pressure. The genetic heterogeneity is in the tumours. We know from increasingly advanced methods for analysing tumour um, genetic mutations that there are really thousands and thousands of genetic mutations in each individual tumour. Um, and the selection pressure are some of the new drugs that we're adding, and, and you're absolutely right, the vast majority of the cells die, but a very small subset essentially see for, for regrowing and taking that different path. So when someone's put on therapy and they've got a cancer to start with, it's going to have a mixture of these different genetic changes, making it sensitive to some things and not others. Um, does this mean then that just going in with one drug is a flawed strategy? Because comparing it with, say, treating a virus infection, we know that if you use just one drug in people who have HIV, then you very quickly get viruses coming up which can just bypass that drug in the same way. The way that virologists get around this is to put patients on several drugs at once to make it much harder. So is that what cancer biologists are or need to be doing? Yes, very much so. There are some cancers which are almost single gene diseases. Perhaps the best example is chronic myeloid leukaemia, where that is very much driven by a single gene and, and there are now very good drugs which, which inhibit that and, and make that to all extent, to a great extent, a manageable disease. But for many other cancers, because of these multiple mutations, yes, I think increasingly the way to go is going to be using combinations of different drugs which target these different signalling pathways inside the cell. So tell us a bit about your work in the sense that you're saying you're now sort of trying to dive inside the cell and unpick some of these, uh, for want of a better phrase, tube maps to, yeah. to see how cells are doing what they're doing to find out ways of stopping them doing this, this train-jumping trick. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. So we're growing human tumour cells in the laboratory and we're treating them with some of the, the very new specific drugs and we're generating resistant human tumour cell lines in, in the laboratory and then actually analysing how they've re remodelled their tube map, how they've remodelled their signalling pathways, which pathway they're now using. Is that pathway a, a pathway which we can inhibit with another drug? So that if we can understand how tumour cells re respond and react and, and, and acquire resistance to drug A, 
And if we can identify the mechanism by which they're doing it, then that may actually validate using drug B as well. What about the fact that many cancer biologists will say that a common misconception is to, to call cancer one disease. There are many, many different types of cancers in different types of tissues which can all have different origins and therefore one drug does not treat all. No, that's absolutely true. I think this is perhaps a, an area where the general public are, are less aware that in fact, for example, lung cancer is not just one form of cancer. There's non-small cell lung cancer and there's small cell lung cancer. And there are now, for some forms of non-small cell lung cancer, there are very good drugs which, which can often give quite good responses, but those drugs are no good against small cell lung cancer. The same applies with breast cancer. The same applies with colorectal cancer. These different types of colon cancer are driven by different driving oncogenes, different, different driving cancer genes and therefore drugs which work for one form won't necessarily work for another. So this whole idea of personalised medicine and tailoring therapies to individual diseases is, is probably the way it's got to go but it's going to get very costly. Undoubtedly, yes. Um, I think some people speculate that in the future a, a patient coming into the clinic to start with will, will have their tumour typed um, to work out which mutations are there and this will tailor them to a particular drug or combination of drugs and presumably that will happen for every person because it will potentially be different for every person and by necessity therefore it's taken a lot of time and effort and money to generate these drugs and so I guess understandably drug companies are going to want to see a return on that investment. Some people say, just to finish this off, um, there's never been a better time to get ill, really. Would you agree? I think it's a very exciting time in cancer therapy because we're seeing a return on 20 years, 25 years of research to actually understand what's causing cancer. We now understand that in many cases and we now have very good therapies coming through because of that understanding. So, I, I could, yes, I, I, I could see why they might say that. Simon, thank you. That's Simon Cook. He's from the Babraham Institute in Cambridge. Cat. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Kat Arney and Chris Smith. Still to come, how scientists have developed a way to watch cancer cells spreading in action and a way to make the immune system hunt down tumours. But first, it's time to take a look at some of this week's other leading scientific breakthroughs. Chris, what have you got? Now, Kat, have you ever been the victim of a medical tape accident? I'm not sure. What would you class as a medical tape accident? <laughs> well, I was quite surprised to learn that every year there are millions of injuries caused by medical tapes, these things used to stick but either intravenous lines or tubes and other devices onto patients' skin. And when you peel them off, they can actually bring the skin with them. And this is particularly a problem for little babies and also elderly people because they tend to have very frail, thin, papery skin because it loses a lot of its elastic tissue and its collagen. So why does this happen? Well, the answer is that the medical tape, the adhesive, is actually requiring a bigger force to detach it from the skin than it takes to pull skin off skin. So we need to change that. And there is a paper in the journal PNAS this week that may hold the key. It's by researchers Jeff Karp and Robert Langer. They're at MIT and Harvard in Massachusetts. And they have come up with an easy peel medical tape. And the way this works is very simple, and I can't believe no one thought of this before. They take the standard tape which is usually a backing usually of a polymer called PET and then the glue stuck to that they have put a layer between those two which they refer to as, as a release layer RL and this releasing layer is a, is a very thin layer of silicone and it's very slippery so the adhesive wouldn't normally stick to it and the backing wouldn't normally stick to it so what they do is they etch it into a grid pattern and then the backing can see the adhesive through the grid a little bit and it sticks a little bit and that means when you put the tape down the glue can actually spread the force all the way over the backing so it's very strong in three dimensions when it's on the skin surface but as soon as you lift it up because of that point of weakness between the backing and the adhesive it splits along that plane rather like you're breaking slates apart and easily comes off and it then just leaves a layer of glue on the skin which can very simply the researchers say be removed by rolling a finger backwards and forwards over it and they say and in fact they've got this beautiful demonstration on YouTube what they do is stick some normal medical tape on a piece of tissue paper and then next to it they put their new tape they rip off the piece of tape which is on the uh, tissue paper and it's unharmed you rip it off with the normal skin tape and it pulls the tissue paper to pieces so it really does work
Oh, but what would you do? Just like grit your teeth and rip it off. You don't have to do that anymore. No, the, uh, the whole waxing phenomenon is over. <laughs> well, now, this is a lovely story that's been in the news this week. Now, Dumbo the elephant may have been able to fly, but he was fictional. Now a team of German, US, Korean and Sri Lankan researchers believe they may have found an elephant that can talk or at least make vocal sounds that convincingly resemble human speech. So who is this amazing elephant and um, what can he do? Well, this talented animal is called Koshik. He's a 22-year-old Asian elephant who was born in captivity and moved to Everland Zoo in South Korea when he was just three years old. But he's been the only elephant in the zoo since 1995. And writing in the journal Current Biology this month, Angela Sturger and her colleagues recorded clips of Koshik making unusual noises, which his trainers thought sounded like Korean words. So they played them to 16 different native Korean speakers to see if they could pick out words which he was apparently saying. Now, the scientists found that Koshik can imitate at least five Korean words pretty well, including hello, which is annyeong, uh, no, which is annyeong, and sit down, which is Anja. Though his vowel sounds are apparently much better than his consonants, and we've actually got a clip here of Koshik's trainer saying Annyeong, or hello in Korean, followed by the elephant himself. Well, yeah. It's not too bad, is it? <laughs> I, I think I, could, I can understand that, not that I speak Korean or anything. But how does he do it then? How does the elephant make those noises? Well, elephants' mouths are very different from our own. Their vocal tract is much longer than ours. They make very different sounds in different ways. But to imitate the sound of human speech, Koshik actually puts the tip of his trunk into his mouth to change the shape of his vocal tract. And this has never really been seen in an elephant before. And the only other animals that are known to change their vocal tracts in this way are orangutans who use their hands or they use leaves to change the sounds that they make. So why would the animal want to imitate the person? It's not that common to hear of elephants doing the equivalent of your parrot, is it? Well, not really. This is the first time uh, someone's documented an elephant mimicking human speech, although there's some unconfirmed reports of an elephant in Kazakhstan that can apparently say Russian and Kazakh words. But there's a few other animals. Obviously, you mentioned birds. We know that minor birds and parrots can talk. But there's also a lovely case of Hoover the seal, who was taught human phrases by a fisherman. Why is he called Hoover? <laughs> um, I have no idea. <laughs> and a, a beluga whale called Lugosi, who could say his own name. But actually, it's interesting that attempts to teach chimps to talk um, or to imitate our speech have actually failed, even though their vocal apparatus is really similar to our own, suggesting it's not what you've got, it's basically what you do with it that counts. It's, um, it's something to do with the way your sound perception and production pathways work. But as to why an animal might want to imitate human speech, it's kind of hard to know because uh, they can't tell us. So the researchers suggest that the fact that Koshik was reared in captivity, he's been the only elephant in the zoo for a long time, that might have something to do with it. And in the wild, animals, including elephants, they mimic each other's vocal sounds as part of forming social bonds and groups so maybe he's just trying to bond with his keepers how touching most most of the time they do that by stealing their peanuts don't they <laughs> yeah, i think so also this week a uh, very nice paper again in the journal pnas which reveals how fireflies might hold the key to giving us even brighter leds this is researchers at the korea advanced institute of science and technology jaejun kim and his colleagues what they did was to make some very careful and detailed microscopic studies of the back ends of fireflies and what they noticed was that the segments of the insect's bodies that don't make the light have a, a cuticle or a skin surface if you like which has a sort of ripply pattern but it's amorphous there's no obvious pattern there but then when they looked at the bit of the abdomen that has the light coming out it's very different they've got these beautiful ridges and folds in perfect straight parallel lines on that area which told them there must be something important about this so they measured them and they find these ridges are about one seven thousandth of a millimeter tall and this corresponds to about a quarter of the wavelength of the blue light, which actually comes out of these insects. And this means that their back end could well be behaving like the same sort of anti-reflective coating that we put on camera lenses, for example, which is why when you look at them from a distance, they seem to have a funny shimmery light coming off the front of the camera lens. And what this has the effect of doing is making the output of the light very efficient because it couples the light coming through the abdomen into the air in a very efficient way. So they thought if we copied that design of the back end of the insect, could we use it to make even better LEDs? So that's what they did. They built initially a, a silicon model of the back end of the insect, a bit like a, a mould, with these tiny nanoscale ridges and folds, and then used it to cast a plastic um, dummy of the same thing, which they were then able to turn into the lens that they applied to an LED. The result was an LED that was actually in the region of 3% brighter than any other untreated LED straight away, just by copying the back end of a firefly. That sounds like really cool stuff. 
what could you do with it? They say this biological inspiration can offer new opportunities for single-step and low-cost moulded lenses with high transmission power in high-power LED applications like liquid crystal display backlit units, mobile phone, camera flashes, automotive, domestic and medical lighting. So there you go. Firefly informs much better LED. Scientists from the University of Bristol have analysed pots found in and around what is now the Sahara Desert in Libya. Thousands of years ago, this same place was verdant countryside. By studying the chemical residues found in those containers, they've discovered the first direct evidence that people in Africa were using cattle for milk more than 7,000 years ago. Richard Hollingham has been talking to Julie Dunn at the university's farm in Somerset. Well, what we looked at was uh, lipids in ceramics that were excavated from the rock shelter in the region. And those lipids tell us that those people were using milk products and also animal fat products and processing them in their pots. And they were using this milk for what? Well, they probably would have been making um, butter, cheese and yoghurt. We could tell it was processed in the pots. And um, the reason they would have probably processed it is because most humans are, well, all humans then were lactose intolerant. And in other words, they couldn't drink milk, they would have been quite ill, they would have had very unpleasant symptoms. So if you process milk, that reduces a lot of the lactose content, and um, they could have uh, eaten it without becoming ill. So these pots were from 7,000 years ago, so prehistory, mm. and in that time, we've managed to evolve the ability to digest milk. Yes, it's, it's quite remarkable, really. It's a very good example of selection in action. Around about 10,000 years ago, when people started dairying and settling down, living a farming lifestyle, as opposed to being hunter-gatherers, nobody could tolerate milk. But obviously the new technology comes in. There are these wonderful creatures called cows. They're walking larders. And um, people obviously want a bit of this new technology. They're like the iPad of the ancient world. And um, once you start processing these these milk products and and using them, within about a 1,000 years, a gene evolves which uh, allows people to tolerate milk, so we become lactase-persistent. How do you know they were after the milk rather than milk as a a by-product, that milk was the key to this? Uh, Well, we can identify whether they were processing either milk or the um, fats from the animal, the flesh of the animal, in the pots. And when we looked at what we we call lipid analysis, 50% of the pots showed evidence that milk was processed in them. So it was clearly important to these people. Bear in mind that this region, although it had been quite green and wet in the sort of last 10,000 years, it was beginning to dry up. And as cattle start to come into the area, you're getting these periods of aridity. And cattle are important because they're, you know, they're a source of, of liquid on the hoof, as it were. So these people were moving around the landscape with their cattle and they'd be able to, if there wasn't any water, they'd be able to get a drink from the cattle. And so the cattle became much more valuable for producing milk than they did for meat or, or by-products like the skins or whatever. Yes, we think so. We think so. We think it's the actual, what we call the secondary products of the animal, the milk, the cheese, the butter, the yogurts. Those were the things that were much more important to ancient people rather than the actual flesh of the animal. Why would you kill something that is going to you know, give you food every day? What sort of difference did this make to, to humans then and human civilization? The transition from becoming hunter-gatherers to settling down, it enabled really development of much bigger communities and so on, and which eventually led to the establishment of things like city-states and so on and so on, and, and, and finally to where we are today. So this was happening in Africa. How did we end up here farming cows, drinking milk, making cheese, all this stuff? We really do see a kind of a different pattern emerging in Europe. So cattle were actually domesticated in Europe, we think, and they move into Africa. But they also move with people the other way and spread out right across Europe and into Britain and Ireland, finally getting here around about 4,000 BC, so 6,000 years ago. And pretty much across Europe, people settled down, they became farmers, and they started using milk and its products. So cattle turn out to be incredibly important for these prehistoric people and for the development of humans, and they're still important today. Absolutely, yes. These cattle were incredibly important to these ancient humans. For a start, they, they created the most remarkable rock art, which shows how, how much they clearly thought about and relied on their animals, and they were clearly just as important then as they are today. Julie Dunn 
and some cows from the University of Bristol. And you can hear more in the Planet Earth podcast, which you can find on our website, nakedscientist.com slash specials. It's one of our special editions. Well, returning to our theme this week of cancer, a landmark paper was published earlier this week in the Lancet Medical Journal looking at the pros and cons of breast cancer screening. Professor David Cameron at Edinburgh University is one of the authors. There has been, for some time, a controversy in the area of whether women should undergo regular mammographic screening to try and pick up cancers before they are obvious to the patient or the doctor. The controversy has really ended up with two polarised views, one saying this process works, it prevents women dying early of breast cancer, and another view that says it picks up lots of cancers that never needed to be found, doesn't make much difference to whether women survive breast cancer and therefore should be stopped. So you were then consigned the unenviable task of looking at this data to try to answer that question. Not an easy job to do. How did you do it? We focused on two key points. What were the mortality benefits and what were the harms, particularly the harm of what's called overdiagnosis? And that is a technical term. What it means is a cancer that is found through screening that is a real cancer, but it's a diagnosis of a cancer that would not have otherwise come to light or cause clinical problems in a woman's lifetime. How do we know that a cancer detected at stage X would not have killed that person? For an individual woman, and therefore her individual cancer, we cannot. And so you can only deduce the existence of this group of cancers through the analysis of pooled data, either from randomised trials or from observational studies. And how did you do that? The approach we took was to first go back to randomised controlled clinical trials. The big advantage of a randomised trial is that, provided it's reasonably well designed, the only difference between the two groups of women is whether or not they had mammographic screening. Because what one doesn't want to do, and this has been a a certain criticism levelled at some of the data from America, for example, with things like prostate cancer, where America is extremely proactive about screening people and then diagnosing and treating people with prostate cancer. People have said there's a lead time bias. You diagnose people and actually you, you look like you're achieving an incredible response rate, but actually were those cancers not picked up until later and then treated anyway, the people would have ended up with the same outcome. Exactly. And we did look at quite a lot of observational data and some of the observational studies have been very well conducted in the sense that the authors have tried everything they can to control for things like lead time and underlying differences in breast cancer incidence. But they all tend to rely on some key assumptions, including what would have happened in that population had breast screening not been conducted. And we did an interesting modelling exercise, changing various assumptions but working on the same data set and showed you could draw quite different conclusions. Well, how did you draw the conclusions that you did? OK, let me address the question of how we came to the conclusion that breast cancer screening does reduce the mortality from breast cancer. So we took the hazard ratios for breast cancer screening from these trials, where we had 13 years of patient follow-up after the end of the trial. Because if you're going to catch a cancer early in order to reduce the chance of a woman's dying from it, you need to measure her risk of dying from breast cancer not just during the trial, but for many years after. And our conclusion was that there was a 20% reduction in the breast cancer mortality in these trials. How many lives saved does that turn into? Well, what we then did was to say, let's look and see what happens in the UK where we have a 20-year breast cancer screening programme for women aged 50 onwards, so we took their risk of dying of breast cancer between the ages of 55 and 79, and so we back-extrapolated to work out what the mortality would be without that 20% reduction, which works out at about 1,300 women a year not dying from breast cancer because of breast cancer screening. What about the converse, which is people have picked on the number, which has appeared in the paper in The Lancet, saying, look, there are thousands of people who are now having interventions that they needn't have done. What can we say about that group? We took the same approach as we started with the randomised trials, but critically, if you're going to measure overdiagnosis, you need to have a control group who are never screened. And many of the studies offered or systematically screened the women in the control arm at the end of the trial. So we took the only trials where there was no exit screening. So that left us just three trials to look at for our estimate of overdiagnosis. So we took these three trials and we estimated the risk of an overdiagnosed cancer and our conclusion was that in the UK approach to screening, 
that about 19% of the cancers found during the time of screening would be an overdiagnosis. That translates to a figure of about 4,000 women a year, but the precision of that figure is less than the precision for our mortality benefit. But nevertheless, it is a real number of patients who have a cancer that they didn't need to know about. And what are the implications of these numbers? The significance of the overdiagnosis number is firstly that women need to be aware that this is a risk or a price that they have to pay if they're going to undergo screening. They may have something found that wasn't necessary to be found. However, we can never work out who they are. So they need to continue to be treated exactly the same way. But it offers an opportunity for research to further explore how we could identify these cancers that we didn't need to discover. From the mortality point of view, our primary conclusion was that the breast cancer screening program should continue because we felt 1,300 lives a year was well justifying the continuation of the breast cancer screening program. But the women, when they're invited, should therefore be given a bit more information about the downsides, the harms, a more open discussion about the treatment options when something is found. David Cameron from the University of Edinburgh. In just a moment, we'll hear how viruses can be used to reprogram the immune system to seek out and attack cancers, including cancers that have spread around the body, and a new insight into how cancers spread in the first place. We'll be talking to researchers who have published a new technique for doing just that this week. But before that, Kathleen is on the phone with a question for us. Hello, Kathleen. Hello. Good um, evening. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. By the way, I love you listening to your programme. It's a pleasure. So you're in Lowestoft. How can we help you? I am, yeah. Well, I can't help but wonder, are cancers, do they start and spread because our food is so complicated? Take a bottle of vegetable oil. It says on the bottle 100% vegetable oil. But if you look at the label on the pack, there's antifoaming agent and about four other ingredients. Um, a vegetable stock cube, which sounds quite innocent, but then when you read the ingredients, there's about 40 ingredients in it. OK, Kathleen. Well, that's a very good question. And first of all, let's consider the, the question of what chemicals are in things, because chemicals are in everything. And it's worth bearing in mind that oxygen, a gas that we rely on to keep us alive, actually also gives us cancer, because when you breathe in oxygen, it can turn into a reactive form of oxygen in the body, and that reactive form of oxygen can damage your DNA, and that in turn can lead to changes that make cells grow the way they shouldn't, and so they can potentially become cancerous. Everything that we actually depend on for our life is a chemical, and lots of the things that we eat are complex chemicals mixed together. So just because there are lots of things in things doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad. But your point is well made in the sense that we have to be very sure about what we're eating. And it is possible that many of the trappings of modern life, convenience foods, and also a poor choice of diet could definitely affect our health. And I think probably the best thing to bear in mind is what do the epidemiological studies, in other words, the studies of lots of members of the population who are eating a lot of different things, what do they show? And one very big study, which is being done in our region by a group called EPIC, who are looking at the east of England, and they're asking asking what age do people get diseases at and die at and what risk factors have they got, they found that if people didn't smoke, that they drank only in moderation, they took a bit of exercise and they, and this is the critical thing, they ate their five a day of fruit and vegetables, they could add up to 14, li or 14 years onto the lifespan of the average individual. So in other words, what you put into your mouth does make a terribly big difference to your health outcome. And fresh fruit and vegetables, not putting deleterious things like cigarettes in your mouth and also eating a healthy diet overall and not too much alcohol so don't make life boring, but don't, don't go over the top. That's probably the best way and the best secret to have a healthy life. But great question, and thank you very much for that, Kat. Now, as we've already heard, most deaths from cancer occur when the disease spreads or metastasizes to other parts of the body. And we've already discussed about what might be going on at a molecular level, but we don't really know what's going on at a physical level. What does it actually look like? And now a team from Hubrecht Institute in the Netherlands have developed a technique to allow them to peer into organs within the body and watch metastasis taking place. This gives us really important clues as to how it happens and potentially a way to find drugs to stop it. Now we're joined by Dr. Jaco van Reenen. He's one of the scientists behind the work. Uh, hello, Jaco. Hello. So tell me a bit about why you decided to do this. Why can't we look at cancer spreading right now? The big problem is that you would like to see which cells are growing out or not. 
And what we did before is we took, for example, a biopsies or tissue sections and we just visualized it on the microscope and we looked through the cells. That gives you just a snapshot. So you can, for example, see thousands and thousands of cells that arrive in the liver, but you have no idea which cells will grow into metastasis or not. Of course, you can also look at later stages and then you can see the tumors that grew out. The problem there is that you have no idea which cells didn't make it and why they didn't make it. So what we now did, we developed technology where we labeled the tumor cells in mice and we could see on the microscopes how these tumor cells arrive in the liver and uh, how they grow out into a full metastasis. So this is kind of real-time imaging of cancer spreading. How, how does it work? How can you actually see into a, a liver? I, I, this, you're doing this in mice, I, I guess. Yes. Uh, you can just think of an airplane. So if you look to an airplane and you would like to see inside the airplane, you do not see anything because the light within the airplane doesn't penetrate the wall of the airplane. However, if you now go to the little windows of the airplane and you look through the glass, you suddenly see exactly what's going on there. We do exactly the same. So we invent a little window, which is uh, accessible of a titanium ring with a small piece of glass. And it's very small, but we can implant into the belly of a mouse. And through this little window, we can see what's going on inside this mouse. And we can start really to visualize the individual cells that arrive in the liver and how they grow out. So tell me about some of the things that you can see through these tiny, tiny windows on cancer. So for example, what we observed is that tumor cells that arrive not every tumor cell is growing out, but what we observe that the ones that do grow out, they leave the blood vessels and they migrate a little uh, bit and then they start to grow. And what you would expect is that if a tumor cell starts to grow, you expect a little ball of cells that is growing and growing and growing. But surprisingly, what we observed is that the cells uh, uh, that, that start to appear after a few uh, uh, rounds of, of uh, multiplications is that the cells do not stick together. They don't form a very dense little ball, but they more form a, a larger ball where the cell density is very low. And then slowly over time, this tumor condense slowly. And if you then visualize over time what the behaviors of the tumor cells in the different stages, in these early stages where these cells are not really connected to each other, they are very motile. And we found that if you block this motility, this really blocks the, the growth of this tumor into these bigger tumors. So the key is actually the movement, not just the, the division, the multiplication of the cells. Well, we actually observed that these two things are, are connected. So if you are able to use drugs that block this movement of these cells, you also block the growth of these cells. And we use drugs that if we look to cell cultures, if we use this drug, you can see that it stops, they still proliferate. If we now look in vivo inside the mouse and we see at these fairly early stages and we use the same drug, you can see that the cells stop moving, but then also stop proliferating, so it stop growing. What do you think that these experiments could tell us about how cancer may be spreading in humans? Do you have hope that these same drugs or developing these, uh, these chemicals you're testing into drugs could potentially stop cancer spreading in humans? Well, I think the most important thing is that this is fundamental research, right? So the, the, we have many questions that we just would like to answer. Is how is a tumor cell growing into a metastasis? Our research is just a proof of principle, and, and we see now something new. And whether this holds true in humans, we have to do much more research. Of course, we did just one type of cancer. If you would really want to know whether this helps in the clinic, you have to find out whether this holds true in many types of cancer. But of course, you know, with this technique and our new technology, we have now the ability to really search for drugs that can block a potential new drug targets that we could never really look or, or investigate before. Finally, how did it feel when you actually got this to work? That was really amazing. You, know, you, you just think about it all the time and you always think about static images. So you think that that's a tumor cell and they're just growing. But you have no idea what's going on there. And when I saw that for the first time, that you really see it moving, that you really can see how it's growing, of course, it was very exciting, but kind of terrifying as well, because you realize that the mechanism that you see is causing the death of many people. So scientifically, I was very excited, but as just a an, an human being, it was kind of terrifying as well. Thank you very much. That's Jaco van Reenen from the Hubrecht Institute in the Netherlands discussing the research that he and his team have published in Science Translational Medicine this week. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. 
Current cancer therapies often involve using drugs that are toxic to rapidly growing cells, and this inevitably means that some healthy tissues get hit too, which causes side effects like hair loss, rashes and organ damage. But if we could trigger our own immune system to target a tumour, then we'd have a way to selectively combat the disease while simultaneously minimising the harm to other tissues. The San Francisco-based company Generex Biotherapeutics are using modified viruses to do this. And with us to explain how is the company's chief medical officer, Dr. David Kern. Hello, David. Hello. Please tell us how your approach works. Well, as you said, what we do is we get the body's own uh, defense mechanisms, the immune system, to uh, turn its sights on cancer cells in the body and, and destroy them. And the way we do that is, is we engineer a virus that we call JX594 to specifically target cancer cells, multiply in them, and burst them, and at the same time produce many uh, very potent danger signals to the immune response to get the body's immune system to turn on the cancer. So effectively, by making the virus infect the tumour and break open the tumour cells, in, because the immune system is seeing a virus infection and cancer cells, it doesn't only combat the virus infection, it also combats the cancer. That's exactly right. And then we have one other little trick that we use in, in JX594, uh, and that is to insert the gene for a very immune-stimulatory protein into the virus so virus-infected cancer cells will express this very potent cytokine that stimulates the immune system to recruit immune cells into the tumor to kill the tumor cell. And that, that cytokine is called GMCSF, and it's something that our body makes at low levels all the time. But now with uh, JX594 infection of cancers, they now express very high levels of GMCSF right in the tumor itself to recruit the body's immune system into the tumor and activate it. So when you apply the virus, do you inject it into one part of the tumor somewhere and then let it multiply? Well, that's an interesting thing about uh, using virus therapy. We can administer the product several different ways to cancer. So we can give it directly into the tumor. Uh, and one of the advantages of JX594, which is a, is a type of virus that uh, is, is very stable in the blood, we can also give it IV, so just through uh, you know, an uh, IV infusion th into the arm, as you might get a normal antibiotic and it's able to seek out tumors throughout the body and infect them and, and lyse them. So that's one of the interesting things about this approach. We can use multiple methods of administration. And what is the virus that you're using to do this? I know you're, you've given it obviously a research name because it's now a modified organism, but what did it start out life as? Well, it started out as what's called a vaccinia virus. So vaccinia virus is something that's very, very familiar to the medical community and to almost all of your listeners who are over the age of 40. So this is a virus that was used as a vaccine in children to eradicate smallpox. So it's not a smallpox virus, but it, it tricks the body into protecting itself against smallpox. This is a virus that came from cowpox, which was discovered by Edward Jenner in England over 200 years ago and led to the use of live viruses to vaccinate people against infectious diseases. So hundreds of millions of children throughout the world received live vaccinia virus as a childhood vaccine, and that led to the eradication of smallpox, which is arguably the, uh, man, one of mankind's greatest successes. The problem is if people have had that smallpox vaccination, does this not mean they will now be immune to vaccinia, which means that if you come along and try and treat them if they've got a cancer with your therapy, it's not going to work? Yeah, that was a, a very important concern that we had. We thought vaccinia was the ideal virus for this approach, but we were worried about that. So what we've done is studied in clinical trials whether pre-existing immunity to the vaccinia would prevent the effectiveness of the product. And fortunately, because we use such high doses and the virus replicates to such high titers, uh, high amounts in the tumor, we get very nice efficacy regardless of whether someone was vaccinated in the past as a child. And I think one of the really attractive aspects of this is if you initiate the immune response in one part of the tumor, then whether there are just single tumors or other tumors and metastases elsewhere in the body, they're going to get hit subsequently too by the immune response. But is this safe? 
Well, I think, you know, we, we had reason to believe it would be safe because the virus is very, very specific for cancers. It only gets turned on in cancer cells that have these uh, very common cancer pathways turned on, and those are not, not turned on in normal cells. So we don't see uh, activation and multiplication of the virus in normal cells. And then the immune system, the body's immune system, is very, very clever at, at determining foreign cells versus normal cells. And so uh, we, we believed it was going to be safe, and we've now treated roughly 200 patients with this therapy, and we've seen that to date it's been very, very safe. We've not seen normal tissue damage or any sort of autoimmune uh, problems with this therapy. Well, I'm glad you brought up the issue of trials because what are those sh- trials showing? What sorts of cancers have you been able to treat with this and what are the outcomes? Well, as I said, we've treated about 200 patients to date in phase one and phase two clinical trials and we've, we've treated a wide range of solid tumors including colon cancer, liver cancer, uh, kidney, ovarian melanoma and others. And what we've seen is the virus does become activated in the cancer. It multiplies. It expresses the, the, uh, this immune stimulatory cytokine called GMCSF. So it appears to be working the, the way we thought it would in cancers. And we've looked very carefully for effects on normal tissues, and, and we've not seen those uh, any, any safety issues with normal tissues. So it seems to be very, very cancer-selective. Uh, and then finally, most excitingly, as we've seen, significant tumor destruction, tumor uh, shrinkage in a a number of patients, and we do have uh, randomized clinical trial data showing that at a high dose, JX594 actually improved the the survival duration uh, of patients with very advanced liver cancer. So it's a very exciting time when we're now moving into later stage, larger clinical trials that will be randomized uh, to try to get the product approved and on the market. Terrific, David. Thank you very much. That's David Kern. He's from Generex Biotherapeutics. We're discussing breakthroughs in cancer this week with us is Simon Cook and David Kern. And we also have on the line down from the Netherlands, we have Jaco van Rienen from the Hubrecht Institute in Utrecht. First off, uh, probably one for David. Um, David, apart from obviously virus therapy like yours, could you tell us what sorts of chemicals get used in chemotherapy? How do we actually try to combat um, cancers with drugs, including things like yours? Well, I think the original approach to cancer, uh, systemic cancer treatment after radiation and surgery had, had failed was to use very toxic, poisonous drugs to try to get cancer cells to uh, kill themselves. And as you might imagine, this caused a lot of toxicity with the uh, side effects that most people are very well aware of with chemotherapy. And the products didn't work very well. I'd say over the last 15 years, we've come up with much better and more specific ways of targeting cancers using uh, very uh, clever, specific molecules that, that uh, turn cancer's uh, pathways and genes off. Uh, and we've also come up with antibody therapy, which is using antibodies, which uh, humans make uh, normally after infection, and, and targeting these specifically to cancer cell uh, markers on the surface of cancer cells. And this has been a very effective way to target breast cancer with something called Herceptin and also to turn off the blood supply to tumors with something called uh, Avastin. There's a question here uh, which has come in from Ron on the text, and he says, what is cancer of the brain and can it be treated? Could Generex also be used to treat brain tumors? Eventually, yes. Brain tumors can either be metastatic, from a spread from another spot in the body, or they can start in the brain. And the ones that start in the brain that are most difficult to treat are called glioblastoma, multiforme. A number of oncolytic viruses similar to the ones we're using are being tested in glioblastoma, and eventually we will test ours against glioblastoma as well, although we've not started those clinical trials yet. Cat, one for you. John Nutt is wondering, what is PSA, prostate-specific antigen, and what's its connection with prostate cancer? So PSA is a molecule produced by prostate cells. Now there's a test. You can measure people's blood and see the level of PSA in it. This is called the PSA test. Um, it's, in some ways, it's kind of a screening test for prostate cancer, but it's not part of the national screening program for a number of reasons. Now the, the big problem is, is that if your prostate starts growing, if it's got a cancer in it, then in many cases it will produce lots and lots of PSA. So if a man has this test and it shows that you have a very high PSA level, it's suggestive that you might have a prostate cancer. 
But the problem is at the moment, and this is kind of what the problem with breast screening is, uh, is turning out to be, we can't tell which of these dangerous cancers, these dangerous prostate cancers that a man should definitely have treated. And there are side effects of the treatment. It can leave men impotent. It can leave them incontinent. And which cancers actually will grow very slowly and cause no problems to a man in his lifetime. It's important to remember that most men in their 80s have some kind of prostate cancer, but it's not going to be the thing that kills them. And the other problem with the PSA test is that actually some types of prostate cancer don't produce a lot of PSA. So you'll miss men that do have prostate cancer because it won't pick them up. And also you'll overdiagnose men that don't really have a prostate cancer that's going to kill them, but could lead to them having unnecessary treatment, which is why it's a, it's a very difficult test to, to explain. Um, and there is a, there's a lot of information that doctors can give to men deciding whether they want to have a PSA test and inform them about the options. Thank you, Kat. Simon, one for you. Heather Williams uh, has said on Twitter at Naked Scientists, angiogenesis is critical to cancer growth. Does it help metastasis too? Are there effective anti-angiogenic therapies now? Um, what do you think? Um, yes, angiogenesis is, is critical to uh, metastasis. If you think about all the normal organs in our body, the brain, the liver, the lungs, they all have a blood supply that takes nutrients to those organs and gets rid of waste from the organs. Um, a tumour, a primary tumour, is, is not normal, so it doesn't have a blood supply. And so the only way it can spread around the body, uh, metastasis as it were, is to actually um, develop a new blood supply. And so tumours actually secrete factors, cytokines, which encourage the growth of new blood vessels so that the tumor, primary tumour becomes vascularised so that tumour cells can now leak out into the bloodstream and spread around the body. And there are new anti-angiogenic therapies undergoing treatment at the moment. Uh, one antibody, which was mentioned earlier on, is Avastin, and also... Um, small inhibitors of enzymes called VEGF receptor in, um, receptors. Um, and these are currently being tested in clinical trials at the moment. So uh, anti-angiogenic therapy is very much um, a, a topical, topical area. Thank you. Talking of hard-to-answer questions, we've got a mind-bending question of the week to finish with this week. And here is Hannah Critchlow. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. This week, we wonder why certain fungi behave in a particular way, with a question just in from Aru Hutterman in Helsinki, Finland. How come some fungi have evolved to produce substances that are hallucinogenic like psilocybin? What's the benefit and cost of producing such chemicals? Thanks for a great show. To find out, I met up with natural chemist Professor Mike Cole from Anglia Ruskin University, Cambridge, to buy some non-hallucinogenic mushrooms from a local market stall. The reason that many fungi produce um, what are called secondary metabolites is as a defence reaction to their environment. For example, they might prevent attack by animals, plants, other fungi, or in fact bacteria. They're called secondary metabolites because they're not essential for life in the same way that vitamins, sugars and amino acids are, but they do confer some advantage on, in this case, the fungus that produces them. The cost includes producing precursor chemicals, supplying the energy compounds, supplying the reducing power. Whilst as forensic scientists we understand a lot about the genetics for the identification of these organisms, there is nothing known about the genetics of how these compounds are produced, although we do understand the biochemical pathway in terms of the starting materials and the end products. There are a host of other compounds that are produced by fungi, plants and bacteria. Perhaps one of the most famous of these are the ergotamine alkaloids, which are used post-operatively, um, but also are hallucinogenic. And also compounds produced by a fungus called claviceps, which supplies the precursor chemical for our friend LSD. That was Professor Mike Cole from Anglia Ruskin University, Cambridge. We next bend our minds to bite into a fresh question from Rob Farone, listening to the show in Singapore. I read and heard that a human being can last about 30 days without any food. The body basically consumes itself and finally expires. What if a human being, a 200-pound man, shall we say, had his arms and legs removed and somehow it was turned into food which he had to consume? Putting aside the medical issue of the shock and the infections and so on, how long could this person remain living by consuming his own body, as it were? 
So what do you think about that gruesome quandary? Let us know by posting on our Naked Scientists Facebook page. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists. You can email Chris at thenakedscientists.com or you can join in our live debate on the forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Hannah Critchlow. Well, that's it for this week. Join us next time when we'll be exploring the itchy subject of bed bugs. Scratch, scratch. They're making a big comeback. But why? We'll also hear about their rather strange mating habits, so now's the time to send in any questions ahead of that programme. Meanwhile, I'm very pleased to announce that I have a new book just out. It's in the stores and on Amazon right now, and it's called The Naked Scientist, The Science of Everyday Life Under the Microscope. I've picked out the best breakthroughs that we've covered here on the show in the last few years, and I've looked at them in a bit more detail. It's a fun and humorous read, I promise, so please do go and grab a copy. Thank you to our guests this week, Joanne Massigay, Simon Cook, Jaco van Rienen, and also David Kern, and our producers, Hannah Critchlow, and Ben Valsler. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council, and UK Fast. For more cutting edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.